And then also for those of you listening on Audioverse, the handout that we have here in the class should be up on the Audioverse website to go along with the class. So this time, let's go ahead and bow our heads for a word of prayer and we'll get started. Father in heaven, we thank you for the Sabbath day. We thank you that we can study about the midnight cry and the great disappointment. Please be with us now as we get into this topic. May your spirit be with us. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so did anybody not get a handout? Raise your hand if you didn't get a handout. There's a couple of hands going up. Um, we still have a few left. <clears throat> so we'll just leave them on the back, Dwayne, and people can pick them up when they come in if, if they'd like. So what we are going to do today, last week... Timarakawa taught the class, and we started with the Great Advent Awakening and got up to about the time period of 1840 in the Millerite movement. What we're going to do today is we're going to hit a couple of key issues that happened in the Millerite movement from the time period of 1840, and we're going to get through the, the first and second angels' messages as they came into the Millerite movement. And we're going to look specifically at the midnight cry. What was it? What was the purpose of the midnight cry? We'll get into the great disappointment. And then we'll look at the big picture and look at what is the significance prophetically of the midnight cry, the great disappointment, and us as God's people today. So that's sort of where we're headed. Now, <clears throat> when we, what we covered last week, we saw that there was an awakening in, in studying Advent prophecy. This is under heading number one. And the Millerite movement really in the United States filled in that gap. And of course, all over the world, there were people studying these prophecies as well. William Miller was the key person who studied these prophecies. He was a simple farmer, and yet he studied the Bible hours a day. That's a rebuke to us who think, well, I could never know the Bible like that. Well, if we're studying 10 minutes a day, of course we won't. But if we study hours a day like William Miller did, we might have a chance to learn what he learned. Now, <clears throat> when we get into the fulfillment of prophecy with the Millerite movement, William Miller began preaching Revelation 14, 6, and 7, Fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, at the very beginning of his preaching. And he believed that the first angel's message was being fulfilled through his preaching. And indeed it was. Now, the reason why is because the first angel's message announcing the hour of God's judgment is Revelation's description of the fulfillment of the 2300 days. And William Miller's cornerstone preaching was about the 2300-day prophecy. So William Miller's preaching was a fulfillment of Revelation 14, 6, and 7. And the Millerites understood that. Now, a, there was a specific fulfillment of Bible prophecy that gave extra power to the first angel's message. And that was the fulfillment of the sixth trumpet. And that's under heading, well, number three, and then we get into number four. <clears throat> We've talked about this in the Revelation class last quarter about how you have the time prophecy of one hour, one day, one month, one year, which is 391 years and 15 days literally. And Josiah Litch was able to correctly calculate this. Now, I'm going to read this quote from Great Controversy to have been exactly fulfilled before Diakosis ascended the throne by permission of the Turks and that the 391 years, 15 days commenced at the close of the first period. It will end on the 11th of August, 1840, when the Ottoman power in Constantinople may be expected to be broken. And this, I believe, will be found to be the case.
And then she goes on to say, at the very time specified, Turkey, through her ambassadors, accepted the protection of the allied powers of Europe and thus placed herself under the control of Christian nations. The event exactly fulfilled the prediction. When it became known, multitudes were convinced of the correctness of the principles of prophetic interpretation adopted by Miller and his associates, and a wonderful impetus was given to the Advent movement. Men of learning and position united with Miller, both in preaching and in publishing his views, and from 1840 to 1844, the work rapidly extended. So here's a, a couple of key points to, to take note of here. Ellen White says that what happened on August 11, 1840 was an event that exactly, it was the event that exactly fulfilled the prediction of the 391 years and 15 days. So that prophecy was fulfilled on August 11, 1840. Now what's the significance of that? The significance is that Josiah Litch was using the the principles of prophetic interpretation that had been developed by William Miller. Now, if you follow any kind of logic, if you see a fulfillment of Bible prophecy to the very day, 391 years and 15 days, that says this is going to be fulfilled on this day, and then you realize that that's not even the cornerstone prophecy that the Millerites are preaching about. The cornerstone prophecy is 2,300 days, and that's just three or four years away. Then you're like, okay, this prophecy just got fulfilled right on the money, so they know what they're talking about, so the 2,300 days is, is most likely going to come to pass right about the time that they're predicting as well. So what happens then is from 1840 to 1844, there, an extra power, as Ellen White describes here, the work rapidly extended, the fulfillment of that prophecy gave extra power to the first angel's message. So now you have the first angel's message going forth with power. Not only is William Miller preaching it with power, but so is Josiah Litch, so is Joshua Himes, so is Charles Fitch, and many other Millerite preachers. So this was a significant event in the development of the Millerite movement. So this was August 11, 1840. Tim talked last week about Joshua Himes' assistance in developing the publishing work. That happened at about the same time that this fulfillment of prophecy took place. So you have a fulfillment of prophecy. You have Joshua Himes helping William Miller out to spread this message through publication in all the major cities. So now this preaching that William Miller had been doing in these small little towns throughout the Northeast starts to take off like wildfire. The first nine years, people know about it, but it hasn't gone too far. Now, all of a sudden, it's exploding into the Northeast, and it's coinciding with people like Joseph Wolfe in Europe and other preachers around the world who are preaching the very same thing. Now, let's put this into a little bit of a practical context. If you study about William Miller again, you discover that when he went through the Bible and studied for himself, he not only was discovering intellectual truths where he f figured out, how, hey, Jesus is going to come in 1843, he found in Jesus what he describes as his best and dearest friend. So you put that together, William Miller wasn't just preaching intellectually about the coming of Christ, he was excited because his best and dearest friend was coming back to this earth to take him home, and he wouldn't have to be on this wicked world anymore. And if we wonder sometimes why our preaching of the second coming lacks power, it's because 
probably for many of us, we have too many roots here on this earth and Jesus isn't as dear to us as he should be. If Jesus was as dear to us as he was to William Miller and the Millerites, our preaching would have much more power. And so that's one of the reasons why the Millerites had so much power. Now, moving quickly here, so first angel's message is given and <clears throat> William Miller had predicted that by the end of 1843, which happened to be around March or April of 1844, he expected that Jesus would come by then. And what happens, obviously, we're still here in 2008, so we know Jesus didn't come in March of 1844. So this is known as the early disappointment or the first disappointment. And after this period in time, William Miller, and you can read about it in the, in the books, he gets kind of confused himself. He's not really sure what's going on. And the <clears throat> Millerite movement goes through a period of what is called the delay, and they're not really sure what's happening. But they still have not given up their faith because the, the time period that had been pointed to was around March of 1844. So they didn't have a real set date to hang their hats on. It was just a general time period. And so after the first disappointment comes, it was a disappointment. But they went back and they started studying further. Did we miss something? What did we miss? Why were we looking at the spring of 1844? Is there something that we should have taken into consideration in these prophecies? So by no means have the Millerites given up. Some people did, but a majority of the Millerites hung on to their treasured hope, their cherished hope, that Jesus would be coming in that time frame very soon. Now, at the same time, and you can read about this in Ellen White's book, Great Controversy, in page 389. In the summer of 1844, the Protestant churches started kicking the Millerites out of their churches. And they said, we don't want you preaching about the literal second coming of Christ in our churches. And the question is, why did the Protestants not want the Millerites to preach about the literal second coming? Because if, if you're a Christian church and you profess to believe in Jesus as your Savior, you profess to believe that Jesus is coming again, why would you not want a group of people to come in and preach that Jesus is coming soon? Well, here is the issue. <clears throat> Most Protestants had accepted the teaching that Jesus would come after a thousand years of peace and prosperity here on this earth, and during that thousand years, the whole world would be converted to Christianity, and then Jesus would come after that thousand years of peace and prosperity. Now here's the interesting thing. These theologians also believed that the 2300-day prophecy would be fulfilled around 1843, 44, or 1866. So they didn't disagree, many of them didn't disagree with William Miller's day-for-year principle of 2300 days, but their interpretation was after 2300 days, we're going to have a thousand years of peace and prosperity. Well, clearly they were wrong. You know, they can criticize William Miller for saying Jesus was coming at the end of that time, but they were predicting a, a thousand years of peace and prosperity. So they want a thousand years of peace and prosperity. They don't want Jesus to come. 
And so they kick the people out that are saying, hey, Jesus is coming before the thousand years, not after the thousand years. In fact, some people said, if you take the day for the year principle, it's going to be 365,000 years of peace and prosperity here on this earth before Jesus comes. So that was some of the stuff that was going on. So when the Protestant churches started kicking out the Millerites, this was a fulfillment of prophecy that the daughter churches of the papacy, also known as you have the mother and the mother, who's the mother of harlots. So the harlots, who are the Protestant churches, who rejected the preaching of the coming of Christ, became part of Babylon as well. And that was the summer of 1844. And Ellen White talks about that. You can read that quote. And Charles Fitch was the first Millerite preacher to preach that the Protestant churches also consisted of Babylon in addition to the papacy. And all that most of the Protestant churches for centuries had taught that the papacy was Babylon. Now, the Millerites are the first to identify, hey, guess what? Those churches that don't want to see Jesus come, they're part of Babylon as well. They rejected the first angel's message. So now that they reject the first angel's message, the second angel's message comes in this order. And we have the Millerites coming out of the churches and they form their own group known as the Millerites. And this prepared them. It prepared the way for the sounding of the midnight cry. And if you study the parable of the bridegroom, and I have a quote, um, I guess it's on the second page of this handout. You can jump ahead to that, where Ellen White says, the parable of the bridegroom has been and will be fulfilled to the very letter. So how was the parable of the bridegroom fulfilled to the very letter? We don't have time to go through all of it too much. But when you read Matthew 25, we see a group of people going forth to meet the bridegroom, which suggests you have a group of people expecting Jesus to come the second time. And it talks about some who were wise, some who were foolish. And then Matthew 25, verse 6, at a midnight, and at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom comes. Go you out to meet him. What's interesting is, after 1844, this was written June 9, 1851, in the Second Advent Review and Sabbath Herald, James White, if you want to look this up, June 9, 1851, James White writes an entire article showing how the Millerite movement was a fulfillment of the parable of the bridegroom. And in Ellen White's book, Great Controversy, she also says, yes, the Millerite movement was a, a fulfillment of the parable of the bridegroom. First angel's message is fulfilled when a group of people goes forth to meet the bridegroom. And then you have um, the early disappointment. Everybody falls asleep. And then the midnight cry wakes everybody up. And we're going to talk about the midnight cry now. So after the early disappointment in the spring of 1844, the Millerite movement falls asleep. They don't exactly know what's going on. Why didn't Jesus come? And God used a man by the name of Samuel S. Snow. And you can read about this in Prophetic Faith of Our Fathers, Volume 4, pages 8, 11, and 8, 12. And also, <clears throat> this is a copy of a paper that I obtained. You can get it at the Center for Adventist Research, Andrews University, Barry in Springs, Michigan. It's entitled, The True Midnight Cry. This is the paper written by Samuel Snow where he outlines his arguments 
and how he developed what is known as the midnight cry. And up until that time, the Millerites thought that the preaching of the second coming of Christ was the midnight cry. And then the Millerites, after Samuel Snow's message, said, no, this was the true midnight cry. Now, what was that true midnight cry? Samuel Snow was able to set the date for October 22. Now, how did he do this? If you read his arguments, and it's, it's clearly led by God how he developed these arguments because it's very tight. What he does is he shows in the Jewish festival system, you have the spring festivals and you have the fall festivals. And in the spring festivals, you had the Passover, the wave sheaf offering, and Pentecost. And you have the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Those were spring festivals. And Jesus, as the Passover lamb, died as the Passover lamb on Passover Friday. So type meets anatype on the very day. It wasn't like Jesus as the Passover lamb is the anatype and dies on some Friday three months after Passover. It was on the very day. Fulfillment on the very day. And then as the wave sheaf offering, as the offering of first fruits, he's resurrected on the day of the offering of first fruits. So Jesus is the first begotten of the dead. As Hebrews talks about him being the firstborn of the dead, he's the first fruits of those who died. So right on the very day. And then on the, the, the feast of Pentecost, the early rain was poured out on the very day. It wasn't like 10 days after or five days before. It's right on the very day. So then... If you follow that logic, you have to look at the fall festivals. And the fall festivals included the Day of Atonement. And when you look at the Day of Atonement, the prophecy of Daniel 8.14 and 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. That's clearly talking about Day of Atonement cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary. Well, they thought it was the, the earth, of course. We know what it is. But... That's Day of Atonement language. And so if you go 2,300 years from 457 B.C., that takes you to 1844. So then the question is, when is the literal Day of Atonement according to the Jewish calendar in the year 1844? And according to the calendar, it was October 22. And if you followed his logic so far... When you get to his line of reasoning for saying October 22 is the Day of Atonement, that's going to be a very startling conclusion that you come to. Because let's look at the context of when this happens. Samuel Snow is giving this exposition on August 12, 1844. Now that's interesting to me. That's my anniversary. Um, So I picked a good day to get married, I guess. But... um, What's interesting is he had actually given the same message one month earlier. Now, what's the significance of that? According to the Jewish calendar, the new year began in April. So if you look at the day-for-year principle, midnight, well, let's look at it this way. A a full day includes half day, half night. And so half of the day is nighttime, half of the day is daytime. And 
if you say that one year or one day equals one year, and you have to think on your feet here, but if one day equals one year, then half of a day would equal six months. Does that make sense? And midnight is halfway through the night. So how many months would midnight be? Well, midnight would be three months into the, the night time. And Samuel Snow first gave the midnight cry three months into the Jewish year. So that's interesting. It didn't gain force till a month later in August. But what happens is he, just, he outlines that argument just as I stated. He shows the fulfillment of the Jewish festivals in the springtime when Christ died as the Passover lamb on the very day. And then he says, now we're coming to the fulfillment of the fall festivals. And the 2300 days is going to reach its fulfillment on the very day, October 22. And he's giving this talk. And the setting for it is he rides up by horseback into town at the Exeter, New Hampshire camp meeting. Joseph Bates is giving a talk. It's not going anywhere. Samuel Snow's sister sitting on the front row. Samuel Snow comes down and sits next to her and says, hey, I have new light for this camp meeting. His sister stands up and says, we have a brother here with new light. Brother Bates, sit down and let him talk. Brother Bates sits down. Samuel Snow gets up and he gives this talk. And there were fanatics that were there that were causing trouble and people were kind of discouraged. They didn't know what was going on. There were several thousand people there. When Samuel Snow gave this talk, it wasn't like all of a sudden people started rolling in the aisles and dancing and screaming. It was like there was hushed silence. And this awesome conviction settles over everybody. Jesus is coming in two months and ten days. Am I ready to meet him? And it was real. It wasn't like, oh, you know, that's an interesting argument. May, you know, maybe, uh, maybe Jesus might come on October 22. I don't know. It was like, that's it. This is the message. This is what we've been missing this whole time. We couldn't figure out why Jesus didn't come in the spring. But now this is the clearest argument we've ever seen about the 2300 days. Jesus is coming October 22, 1844. And the word on everyone's lips after that camp meeting was, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Go ye out to meet him. And this was the fulfillment of the midnight cry in prophecy of the parable of the bridegroom. From, October, from August 12 to 17, when that camp meeting took place, to October 22, 1844, is the period in the Millerite movement known as the midnight cry. It's also known as the seventh month movement because... The seventh month was October, and it was the tenth day of the seventh month that happened to be the Day of Atonement. And so <clears throat> historians describe what took next as the movement was taken over like a tornado. It was like a tornado hit the Millerite movement, and the message of October 22 just stormed across the United States. And everybody who was in that movement who accepted the message was going around telling their friends, Jesus is coming soon. You need to get ready. And it wasn't like going to work and you're just kind of, and I'm talking to myself here, you show up to work and, you know, you see some patients and you eat lunch and make some small talk with your friends and you go home at night and spend 
you know, some time in your devotions and you get up the next day and you do the same thing all over again. No, it was like every day counted. It's like Jesus is coming in two months or less. We've got to make every day count. We've got to make use of all of our time, all of our resources. Everything that we do is going to the, to the proclamation of Jesus coming on October 22, 1844. And the people who accepted that message, they were real. It was they were going to see their best and dearest friend. It wasn't like, oh, that'll be a fulfillment of prophecy. It was heartfelt, it was real, and they had their lives in order. And Ellen White makes a comment about this movement in Great Controversy, page 401. She says, of all the great religious movements since the days of the apostles, none have been more free from human imperfection and the wiles of Satan than was that of the autumn of 1844. And that's the midnight cry phase of the Millerite movement. None has been more free of human imperfection than that movement. Even now, after the lapse of many years, all who shared in that movement and who have stood firm upon the platform of truth still feel that holy influence of that blessed work and bear witness that it was of God. So God was in this work. And, you know, I've often asked myself, and this is a question for all of us to think about, what, what side would we have been on if we had been alive on August 12, 1844? And what if we had been at that camp meeting? Or what if we hadn't been at that camp meeting and then we got word of the message after that? Would we have been like, yes, this is the message? Or like, oh, there goes fanaticism again. Where would we fit in that picture? Because God was in that movement. And what strikes me is, is that we need to be so closely connected to God and to be so into studying the truth for a time that when the Holy Spirit moves, we move with the Holy Spirit. We're not stuck in the back seats doubting. Now, obviously, there's a, there's a place to question fanaticism when there's people that go clearly against the Bible and the spirit of prophecy. I'm not saying to go with every train that goes by. But when the Holy Spirit moves, are we going to be among that people that move with the Holy Spirit? The reason why I say that is that an understanding of the midnight cry is crucial to our, our experience as Seventh-day Adventists. And you may say, what in the world, Norman? What are you talking about? That happened before 1844, before the truth of the Sabbath even came into existence. These were Sunday keepers. And you're trying to tell me that the understanding the midnight cry is important to our experience as Seventh-day Adventists. Hold that thought in your mind because that's a crucial point that we're going to come back to. But I make it again, understanding the midnight cry, what we just talked about, is crucial to our understanding as Seventh-day Adventists. Now, obviously, <clears throat> the midnight cry produced a genuine heartfelt belief that Jesus was coming on October 22, 1844. And what's interesting is Joshua Himes and William Miller, the leaders of the movement, didn't accept the date until two or three weeks before. They were a little bit behind the curve. Um, <clears throat> but... At the same time, you have to appreciate everything that Joshua Himes and William Miller did in that movement. So I'm not going to criticize them 
but they were later to the punch than Ellen White was, Hiram Medson, James White, Joseph Bates, and some of those people. And that's kind of interesting because you think about it, James White, Ellen White, Joseph Bates accepted that message sooner and they stayed faithful to more revelation of truth after October 22. So keep that in mind. Now, we come up to October 22, the very day. It happened to be a Tuesday that year. It was a beautiful, clear day in, in New England. Hardly a cloud in the sky. I've been to William Miller's farm, and it's um, a beautiful place. If Jesus were to come, I honestly think I could say the place I would most want to be would be William Miller's farm out by Ascension Rock. That's a beautiful place. And you can look off to the east, and it's just a beautiful scene, as beautiful as you could imagine. I'm sure there's other places that are more beautiful, but the history that goes with that place, I can't think of a better place to be. Of course, the likelihood of me being there is slim, but if I had a choice, that's where I'd want to be. And on that day, it's interesting, William Miller did tell his family and friends, he's like, you know, if Jesus doesn't come today, don't be surprised because, you know, the Bible does say no man knows the day or the hour. So that's interesting. William Miller did say that to his family. And of course we know it was a beautiful, clear day and people waited. By noon, they're like, well, he hasn't come yet, but he'll, he may come towards the sunset. The afternoon wears on and, you know, people are starting to get a little bit nervous. Boy, where is he? Why hasn't he come yet? And then the sun goes down and then they think, well, maybe it will be at midnight. But by now, people's hearts are starting to pound a little bit, like, where's my best friend? Why hasn't he come? I mean, we know this is the day. It's clear. He has to be coming this day. There's no other explanation for the 2300-day prophecy. This is the day of atonement. He's coming. There's no way he's not coming today. And then the, the clock struck midnight. Now, <clears throat> if, and I, I've done, you know, my best to try to create some kind of a feeling some kind of an emotion for what it might have felt like. Of course, I'm not even coming close. These were people who had put everything into October 22, 1844. Their whole lives, everything. And you come to that point expecting to see Jesus come in the clouds, the greatest event in human history. You know it's going to be that day. You're ready for it. You know you're ready to see Jesus come. And then he doesn't come. You know, I've said this before to some people. If I knew that Jesus was coming 100%, without a doubt in my mind, when I wake up on October 22, 1844, that is the happiest day of my life. I am so happy that finally, after all this sadness and whatever here on this earth, that Jesus is finally going to come and I'm going to get to be with my best and dearest friend. And then I come to the end of that day and he doesn't come. That would be the most awful disappointment you could ever imagine. And, you know, my father has passed away, but yet I, I went to the funeral having the full expectation that I'll see him again. How do you think Charles Fitch's family felt? He passes away one week earlier, and they come to October 22, and now they realize that, hey, it's not going to be a one-week separation. It's going to be a who-knows-how-long separation. It was an awful, awful disappointment. And for those who really loved Jesus, it was a devastating blow. Let me read to you. This is a very familiar quote from Hiram Edson. He said, We confidently expected to see Jesus 
and Jesus Christ and all the holy angels with him, and that his voice would call up Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the ancient worthies and near and dear friends which had been torn from us by death. Our expectations were raised high, and thus we looked for our coming Lord until the clock told twelve at midnight. The day had then passed, and our disappointment became a certainty. Our fondest hopes and expectations were blasted. That's strong language. They were blasted. And such a spirit of weeping came over us as I never experienced before. We wept and wept till the day dawned. Can you imagine crying all night? How many of you have ever cried all night without falling asleep? I mean, they were crying so hard that they cried until the next morning without falling asleep. It was a devastating disappointment. Now, what's interesting, Revelation chapter 10, verses 8 through 11, prophesied of this very event. You take the scroll in the mouth, it's sweet in your mouth as honey, but it's bitter in the belly. And this was the experience of the early Advent movement as they came to October 22, 1844. What's interesting is you get to Revelation 11, verses 15 to 19. It tells us what happened on that day. We see that the temple of God was opened in heaven. We could see the Ark of His Testament. And you see that Revelation 11 says that the time of the dead that they should be judged begin on that day. So we have the beginning of the judgment. As Jesus goes into the most holy place where you have the Ark of the Testament, you have the beginning of the judgment. And of course we know the story that Hiram Edson, who wept till the day dawned, the very next day he and his friends get into a barn in upstate New York and they prayed and they prayed and they prayed asking for the Lord to give them something that will help them to understand what's going on. And they keep praying and they keep praying until the Holy Spirit comes over them and they have assurance that he's going to give them more light on what happens. And then it was after that, it wasn't like a two-minute prayer like, Lord, we're so sad. You didn't come. Please help us to get through this day and help me to be nice and have a good day at work. Thank you. Amen. It was They prayed and they prayed, Lord, we love you. You're our dearest friend. Help us to see what we didn't get in Scripture before. Help us to understand. And after that, Hiram Edson's walking through the cornfield, and we don't know if it's a vision or if he was just received an impression, whichever it was. He sees that Jesus actually went into the most holy place for the first time, and that was the beginning of Christ's high priestly ministry. And it was from that understanding, and we'll talk about this next week with Adrian teaching, how the development of our key Adventist doctrines came together, the Sabbath, the sanctuary, state of the dead, the second coming, spirit of prophecy, all of those S doctrines. The very next day, the Lord was with those who took the time to pray. And so further light came. Now, you know, what's kind of sad is that William Miller and Joshua Himes, they had sort of been the leaders and the caretakers of this whole movement. And a lot of different fanatical edges came into this movement. And they saw Ellen White having a vision and people accepting that you just sleep in the grave until Jesus comes and the seventh day is the Sabbath as another fanatical fringe to all these splinters that were breaking off after October 22, 1844. And they tried to hold things together and um, the group that still exists to this day, 
that tried to hold to the literal teaching of the second coming of Christ, but didn't accept the Sabbath, didn't accept some of the other teachings, is the Advent Christian Church. They're a very small group. They haven't grown. Seventh-day Adventist Church did, so you can draw your own conclusions from that. William Miller, Ellen White makes some interesting comments in early writings about him. There's a few paragraphs I had. You can read those on your own, but about two-thirds of the way through the first paragraph... She says, he failed in not receiving the message, this is the third angel's message, the, the Sabbath message, which would have fully explained his disappointment and cast a light and glory on the past, which would have revived his exhausted energies, brightened his hope, and led him to glorify God. So if William Miller had accepted the third angel's message, he would have preached it with power, and God would have been able to do great things. Then the next paragraph, she says, Moses erred as he was about to enter the promised land, so also I saw that William Miller erred as he was soon to enter the heavenly Canaan and suffering his influence to go against the truth. And then the last sentence, angels watch the precious dust of the servant of God and he will come forth at the sound of the last trump. So, you know, I've been to his grave and it's like, you know, it's interesting to think you're in the presence of angels at his grave. He was a mighty man of God. It's unfortunate he didn't accept the third angel's message. But yet, he still held firm to his faith. Notice what he said after 1844. He said, Brethren, hold fast. Let no man take your crown. I have fixed my eyes upon another time, and here I mean to stand until God gives me more light. And that is today, today, and today until he comes, and I see him for whom my soul yearns. William Miller didn't lose his faith in Christ. You know, what are we like? You know, we go through a disappointing experience in our life. Maybe we break up with someone, a relationship goes bad, we lose our job or, or whatever. Um, do, do we go from, oh, Jesus is the greatest to, I'm not sure if God exists. William Miller went through the worst disappointment you could ever imagine. And he says, you know what? Jesus is still who my soul yearns for, and I know he's coming. So we can learn a lot from that. Now, <clears throat> I want to re remember when I said that the, ex the understanding of the midnight cry and the great disappointment is crucial to our understanding as Seventh-day Adventists today. I want you to go down to the bottom of this, towards the bottom of this page from the quote, early writings, page 14. Now remember, the midnight cry is Samuel Snow clearly art articulating the date for October 22. And the tornado known as the Seventh Month Movement that took over the Millerite movement after that time. Notice what Ellen White says, early writings, page 14. This is her first vision. Remember this, this is her first vision, the first light God gives. She says, while I was praying at the family altar, the Holy Ghost fell upon me, and I seemed to be rising higher and higher, far above the dark world. I turned to look for the Advent people in the world, but could not find them, when a voice said to me, look again and look a little higher. At this I raised my eyes and saw a straight and narrow path cast up high above the world. Now many of us have heard this, right? There's that straight and narrow path on the way to heaven. Now notice what she says next. On this path, the Advent people were traveling to the city, which was at the farther end of the path. Now this is crucial. Listen to this. They had a bright light set up behind them at the beginning of the path, which an angel told me was the midnight cry. This light shone all along the path and gave light for their feet so that they might not stumble. If they kept their eyes fixed on Jesus, who was just before them leading them to the city, they were safe. 
Now here's the key point that you cannot miss. How do you get on the path? You see the light of the midnight cry that Samuel Snow first articulated, setting the date for October 22, 1844. If you don't see light in that message, you haven't even gotten on the path. That's crucial. In order to get on the straight and narrow path, the light at the beginning of the path is the light of the Millerite message of October 22, 1844. Another way to look at it is, if you don't see light in October 22, 1844, you haven't gotten on the path. Another way to look at it is, if you got on the path, and now you don't see light in October 22, 1844, you've fallen off the path. So the beginning of the path is the light of the midnight cry shining Amen. all the way to the second coming. Now you may say, well, what in the world? Why is that the light? You remember why, how Ellen White says this parable has been and will be fulfilled to the very letter? How is that parable be going to be fulfilled again to the very letter? All you have to do is read Revelation 18 verses 1 through 5. There's an angel that comes down from heaven. The earth is lightened with his glory and it's it's an emphasis or an accentuation of the second angel's message, just as the midnight cry was an accentuation of the second angel's message in 1844. So history repeats itself. The midnight cry gave extra light to the second angel's message as it first began to be given in 1844. And then the loud cry, which is the latter rain power, by the way, it's the latter rain falling on his people at the end of time. It lightens the earth with its glory and it gives an accentuation to the fulfillment of the second angel's message in Revelation 18. In the Millerite movement, it was the beginning of the second angel's message, but in Revelation 18, it's the final fulfillment. And it's the second advent movement. Those people who got on the path when they saw the light of the midnight cry, and they say, hey, you know, first and second angel's messages have been fulfilled. Now we see light in October 22. Let's get on the path. That light hasn't changed. It's still the same. And then at the end of the history of Adventism, people who have understood the experience of the Millerites, they're on the path and they are the final fulfillment to the moving of God. So we're not just here to study history to say, oh, okay, that's nice. The Millerites had a powerful experience and the Holy Spirit moved upon them in a powerful way. The point is, the Holy Spirit's going to move upon those of us who are willing to accept this message and give everything that we have to an even greater degree than the, what the Millerites did in 1844. And, you know, I quoted from my father-in-law, Gerard Domstick, that's in the middle of this last page. And sometimes you wonder, you know, people who don't see light in the midnight cry, these are the people who will start to bring in other kinds of lights. They'll say, well, why don't we make the church more relevant? Well, they don't even understand the experience that we went through to become a denominated people. And so they say, let's make the church more relevant. Let's change our music style. Let's change our dress style. Let's change our theology. And that's taking the church in a direction that God never intended. 
the direction that God intended, it starts with what happened with the Millerites. It's a straight and narrow path that doesn't go off in a new direction, and it goes all the way to heaven. And when God has a group of people that accept the three angels' messages in their totality, then we will see a message that will lighten the earth with its glory in a similar manner to how the Millerites affected their time period. So let's strive to be among that people. Amen. Thank you, everyone.